Is everybody ready to look at the Word of God? Are you ready to hear from the Holy Spirit? Well, good. Because I am too. People say, man, I can't wait to hear what you got to say today. I said, neither can I. That's right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the event that Kevin talked about that we celebrate not just once a year, but all year long. We celebrate your willingness to become a substitute for us and for you paying our debt and for you taking upon yourself our sin so that we could take upon ourselves your righteousness. We rejoice in that today. We are, we are certainly grateful, Lord, and help us to be good stewards of such a gift. Now today as we open your scriptures that we believe that you have anointed and you, you inspired by your Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, to write this letter. We pray that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, and we would see and hear what we can only see and hear by the revelation of your Spirit. Lord, help me today to speak words that are anointed and alive, and let us all, when it's all said and done, let us all say, that we have heard the voice of your spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said, the risen Christ is the preeminent Christ. In a moment, we're going to read Colossians 1, and we will read in that passage that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and therefore he is preeminent. We'll deal with that more then. Um, but here we are the Sunday after Easter. What are we going to do with this Jesus? How, what are we going to approach and how are we going to approach him? And it's important that we see that this risen Christ, and we'll cover that, is the preeminent Christ. And we need to view the risen Christ in all of his supremacy, all of his glory, and all of his preeminence. What I want to do today, and by the way, Sean, I'll bring the worship team back up. There he is. When we're done, because I want us to provide an opportunity to worship the Jesus we're going to talk about for the next little bit, 30, 40, 100 minutes, 80. I don't, we're going to talk about, there used to be an old song, let's talk about Jesus. And, and that's what we're going to do today. I want us to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and how Paul uh, illuminates him to us in this letter in just a few verses, really. We're obviously not going to read the whole thing. But we need to, I want us to see. Everybody say, I want to see. I want us to see the Lord Jesus today and see him as he is, as he is described by the Apostle Paul in this passage. And secondly, to observe the gospel of who Jesus is and why he deserves all of our praise and all of our honor. And, and, Lastly, we're going to try to keep the truth of Christ exalted in position ever before us so that false truth and notions have no place in our world. As we alluded to and actually spoke of last Sunday, there is a plethora of false truths and notions floating around. And I'm not talking about in the world. I'm talking about in the church. And uh, thank God. That in this community and in the communities in which we live, that the 
largest, largest majority of churches, uh, largest majority of churches in our area are gospel preaching, Bible believing churches who preach Jesus Christ the way we believe in Jesus Christ. But, but the world, but the church community as a whole is being infiltrated with ideas and false notions, um, that we just need to guard against. And the way you guard against it, some of you have been in the banking business. I've been told that the way you learn in the banking business to identify counterfeit money is not to learn what counterfeit money feels like, but to learn what real money feels like. So that when a counterfeit bill touches your fingers, you immediately know that's not right. And, and here, we're not going to spend a lot of time preaching against something. But we're going to spend a lot of time preaching for something. And today we're preaching for someone, Jesus Christ. So if you haven't turned already, if you want to turn to Colossians 1, uh, and and, uh, I'm going to be reading once again from the English Standard Version. And uh, if you would stand with me while we read, I'll set this up briefly. Paul is writing to this church, and in the previous verses, he says, I'm giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. So he's talking about Jesus Christ. And then he continues on with our text. He is, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Let the words of these verses sink into you today. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, everybody say everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by that event, the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister, you can be seated May the Lord add his anointing and revelation to the reading of his word. And so we want to talk just for a moment about the background of the community of Colossae and what the church was dealing with there. There had come into that city some false teachers who had some ideas uh, about uh, the spiritual realm. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but we, we, all, we know that these folks claimed a knowledge that was apart from Christ. And you can find that in, in uh, ch- chapter 2-8. Uh, that they had an emphasis on prescribed rituals. They were ritualistic. 
And uh, that's how they attempted to worship God. Uh, there's also, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, there's also the issue of the worship of angels. These false teachers were trying to bring into that community. And teaching the folks to delight in false humility. Uh, all of that's found in chapter 2. Today, we deal with similar things in the church uh, of Jesus Christ, and especially in America but we deal with base, two basic problems that I see today. And the first problem I'm going to call, and I'm not the first one that's done this, pluralism. And pluralism is, is uh, certainly uh, was, was there in Colossae. The false teachers in that day, in Colossae, they taught that Jesus was merely one among many intermediaries. He was just one of many. And however great, he might have been. He was only a partial revelation of God. So that here they were not coming in. And, and this is, by the way, how the devil will attack you and me. He will not come in with completely false doctrine that you turn around 180 degrees. He just comes in with a little tidbits. Well, Jesus was a great guy, but he was just a partial revelation of God. And they were trying to teach these truths. And so we deal with that today. We have dealt with the dilution of Jesus Christ being preeminent. And just another guy. Pluralism is the belief that all religions are true, that one religion is as good as another, and that all roads lead to God. You've heard that. I've heard that. I've had people, I've had Christian people tell me, people that were raised in the church and were still in the church tell me that all good people go to heaven. Well, they may, but the Bible says there's no one good. No, not one. But I've had people tell me, well, you know, all these people that are doing good works, they're all going to go to heaven, no matter who they're worshiping. And it's just not true. And that's why I preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. The other problem we deal with is, is a word, and you've heard me use this in the past, and it's a word called syncretism. Syncretism is the reshaping of Christian beliefs and practices through what, what we would call cultural accommodation. So that consciously or unconsciously, we blend those with the dominant culture. We take our beliefs and the beliefs of the culture and we blend these beliefs and we say, well, that's great. But what that is is syncretism. And there is no room for the blending of the dominant culture beliefs when they violate the truth of the scripture. No room. Syncretism of the Christian gospel occurs when critical or basic elements of the gospel are replaced by religious elements from the host culture. It's easy to be deceived when you get little droplets of world culture and world system into your gospel, into your theology. But we must guard against that. How do we guard against that? And that's by the embracing of the truth of the scripture First and foremost, so that when you hear something or see something, you say, well, I, I don't I don't know about that. I, I don't that doesn't that doesn't sound right. So these are the two issues that we deal with today. And I'll tell you this. There's a lot more. <laughs> I just want to hit those two. But we deal with uh, we deal with voices today that are outside the church. We deal with voices that are extra biblical. And. Um, too many times I'm hearing of churches, I'm hearing of leaders, 
uh, falling for these false ideas and began to embrace them and worse to preach them. And uh, we just cannot, we cannot succumb to that. So Paul takes us through these, these, just these few verses. And he first tells us that Jesus is the personification of God, the father. Jesus is the very personification of God, the father. He said, he's the image of that invisible God. We have said many times that Jesus we quoted Jesus when he said, my mission is to present to you the Father. He came to earth primarily. I know we think we're the center of his attention, but he came to us primarily to represent and communicate God the Father to humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And he came and he did that. He said everything. He's like, what I do, I do to please my Father. What I do, I do to obey my Father. He said that repeatedly. Um, and so he is the personification of God the Father. And when God created man, he said, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so God fashioned Adam and Eve. Now when Jesus came onto the earth and he was born of a virgin, he was born a human being, he was a completely human and he was completely divine. He was God. But when he came and he was born into the earth and born through that woman, he became the ultimate fulfillment of that verse. That, that there would be a man in the earth who would be the very likeness and the very image of God in the way that God intended. The word image that is used there uh, is a word icon. It's, it's spelled E-I-K-O-N, but you can see where we would get our word, I-C-O-N, icon, uh, as something that represents something. Um, uh, Hebrews 1.3 talks that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. Exact representation. He is that icon. I, some months ago or years ago, I don't know, I was talking about another topic, but I, used, I talked about icon, and I pointed out that you know, those of us who operate a computer every now and then, you double-click or in some cases click on that icon that's on your screen because it represents. When I get ready to write kernels of truth or anything, I click on that W that says it's a word, Microsoft Word. Well, the, 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 little, the little W is not Microsoft Word. It's just a shortcut. When I click on that, up comes Word. And then I got to get to work. What do people see when they click on you? What comes up? What comes up to into the RAM, into the random access memory of your life? What do they what they what do they see on the screen of your life? Well, when they clicked on Jesus, they saw the Father. Everybody who touched Jesus, everybody who encountered Jesus, everybody who had a conversation with the Son met God the Father. Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, I've been with you this whole time. In other words, if you know me, you know the Father. And Paul wants us to understand that. That Jesus makes an invisible God real. He makes an invisible God real to us. And when, if you want to know what God the Father is like, study Jesus. 
You know, we've had too much, and you've heard me talk about this. I've been here too long, I think. Was it 20 years? And y'all haven't heard everything i got to say. I'm going to say it again. We've, we've had too much of this God of the Old Testament's mean, the God of, and Jesus of the New Testament's nice, as nothing could be further from the truth. And, if, and people who do that don't know God. They don't really know Jesus. Or at least they didn't watch him as he was cracking that whip and clearing that temple that day. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't sweet. Never mind. Never mind. If you want to know God the Father, you just need to study the Lord Jesus. All of the Lord Jesus. Not just the things that you like. And then he says, uh, not only is he the image of the invisible God, he said he's the creator of all things. Creator of, by him, all things were made. Those in heaven and earth, those that are visible, those that are invisible, the, the thrones, the dominions, the principalities and the powers. Do you ever think about that? That the principalities and the powers that we do battle against today were created by Jesus? Do you think that he can be Lord over those principalities and powers? Of course, we talked last week that he actually on the cross and in his resurrection, he actually defeated those principalities and powers. This reminds me of John 1, 3, when he writes, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. When I was real young in the Lord and I was, I read that verse one day, I just felt like I heard the Lord say to me, if God the Father would not make anything without the involvement of the Son, why in the world would you try to do anything without the involvement of the Son? All I had to say was, oh me. Because all of us know we, we, we try to skip around his involvement. All things were created for him. Not just by him. For him. For his glory. Creation. Was, as William Barclay says, we, creation was created to be his and that in its worship, not the worship of creation, but creation's worship of Jesus and its love, he might find his honor and his joy. Creation worships God. By the way, you and I are part of creation. But Jesus said, if you don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. We used to sing an old song about trees clapping their hands and worshiping God. Creation, Romans 1 teaches us creation declares and worships God. And redirected worship is worshiping creation. There's a thin line between being good stewards of the creation that we that God's given us and the creation becoming the God that we worship. And we need to avoid the latter. He also said that Paul writes that he is the sustainer of all that exists. He's the sustainer. Said he in, in him all things. Everybody say all things. I think he says this about six times in this passage. In him all things hold together. The very substance that causes all things to hold together is the Lord Jesus himself and his power. Verse 17 in the Amplified Bible reads this way, And he himself existed before all things, and in him all things consist, cohere, 
and are held together. We know that he is the preeminent Christ because all things are holding together. It says in Hebrews that they're being upheld by the word of his power. Now, this kind of challenges the mind. Let's say it that way. If God's word were untrue, if God's word were, were to be discredited, and it cannot, it will not, it never can be, but if it was, the world as we know it would disintegrate because that is what's holding everything together. That's what's holding you together. That's what's holding you through your challenges We just sang, we're going to sing in the midst of the storm. That's how you can sing in the midst of a storm and not fall apart and not be carried away. It's because you're being held together by the word of God's power. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is involved in the beginning of creation. And he's involved in the end of creation. And it's him who holds all that creation together. The Lord Jesus. See, he's not just some sweet baby that came in, in a manger one day. He is that. But, but let's please don't leave him in a manger. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer of all that is, including you, including me. Paul writes that he's the head of the church. He's the head of the body, his church. And, of course, we, we certainly need to remember that uh, sometimes Churches, local churches have been co-opted by someone wanting to be in charge. And uh, there's, again, a thin line between someone operating in under delegated authority from the throne of God and from the head of the church. There's a thin line between that and someone assuming a role uh, that is unbiblical and is not godly. And it becomes more about them than it does about the head of the church, the head of the body. The body is the servant of the head, and it is powerless without it. Obviously, if you were to have your head severed from your body, you would cease to function. But you might function for a few seconds, and it would be, if it wasn't so gruesome, it'd be funny looking. You'd be walking around without any head. Well, I mean, that's that's gross. I know that, and thank God that... Um, so far, my, my mama used to tell me if you, did, you didn't have your head screwed on, you'd lose it. Well, fortunately, it's attached. And the body of Christ is the same way. The, 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 the body serves the head. We don't serve ourselves. And our, the body of Christ is powerless without a connection to the head. Without him, we would have no direction. We would have no purpose And we would have no power without the head of the church. And the church, of course, we are a local expression of the church of Middle Tennessee. You could go further than that, but we limited to that. And we are connected through the Holy Spirit to the head. And we worship the head of the church. We acknowledge his place as the head of the church. The modern church, which we're a part of, we needs to examine, we need to examine ourselves to determine if we're truly holding to the head. Are we holding to a doctrine? Are we holding to a set of 
bylaws? Are we holding to a tradition? Traditions are not bad. Doctrines are not bad. Bylaws aren't bad except when you start arguing over them. But are we holding to all of these things? Or are we holding to the head of the church, the one who died, the one who rose from the dead, and the one who sits on the throne today, making intercession for you and for me? And, of course, he says that Jesus is preeminent. He says he is the beginning. He, and I alluded to this earlier. He said he was the firstborn from the dead. Now, you might have a question there. You might think, well, wait a minute. I, I remember they took a dead guy in the Old Testament and threw him on the bones of Elisha, and he rose from the dead. True. And before Jesus rose from the dead... Lazarus wrote, as a matter of fact, Jesus raised three people from the dead in his years on the earth. So Paul must not have known what he was talking about. He was the firstborn from the dead. He was the first who rose from death to immortality. Because, believe it or not, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what he did later on? He died again. All the people that Jesus raised from the dead, the young man, that he stopped the funeral and raised him from the dead. Later on, he died again. I guess they kept the casket. I know they didn't use casket. The guy, Elisha's bones, he died again. Jesus rose from the dead. He's never going to die again. He was the firstborn among the dead or from the dead so that, it says, so that he might be preeminent. Makes Easter so much more important. Pulpit commentary says Christ became becomes the source of a new humanity, a new creation. Because he's the firstborn, because he's the firstborn into immortality, he becomes that he becomes that source of you and me. And the Bible says, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians five seventeen, that when we're when we're in Christ, we're new creations. We're new creatures. Uh, some of some versions say, of course, when I hear new creatures, I think of Ernest T. Bass. He, he like being called a creature. But we're new creations. We're a part of a new humanity because Jesus was the firstborn among the dead so that he might be preeminent. What does preeminent mean to you? And mean, it's not a word we use an awful lot. It, it, it means to be first. It's not complicated. To be preeminent is to be first. Uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which I highly recommend, says it's a priority of place or a, a superior in rank. It's, it's in first place. It's above everything and everyone. And today we need to see the Lord Jesus. We need to view the Lord Jesus. As, for, as in the first place, as in superior in rank and priority of place. We need to see him above everything and everyone. John says the word in the beginning. How many of you watched The Chosen? How many of you ever, have, you, have, you, have not heard of The Chosen? Oh, don't be embarrassed. All right. Somebody talk to Howard when we're done. Chosen is a very well done, and I often say this, it's a very well done series 
about the life of Christ. And it's been, it's been done in an unusual way. Uh, and they just came out with season two. As a matter of fact, episode two will come out this Tuesday night. They did a great job in episode one of painting the picture of John struggling with what to write, how to write his gospel, how to begin his gospel. And of course, we know how he began. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What a way to begin. It's interesting that when he writes his first letter, 1 John, he begins almost exactly the same way. You could see the importance to John. John was there. John was was definitely in Jesus' inner circle. Jesus at one point appeared to 500 people after he was resurrected. At one point he fed 15 to 20,000 people. Then he had 500 people he saw. There were 120 of those folks showed up in the upper room, received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And out of those 120, he had already selected 12 uh, apostles, 12 disciples. One of them had failed and Matthias had replaced Judas. So there was still 12. But within that circle of 12, he had an inner circle. And that was Peter, James, and John. And there was no question that he was closer to Peter, James, and John than he was to the other nine. Certainly not closer than Judas. But within that circle of three, he had one. And it was the disciple. He describes himself in his own gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, John was definitely closer. There's some indication that they are physically related as cousins. But as he's beginning to write this, isn't it interesting that he, he says, I think I'm going to go with the beginning in the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. And the Word is God. He's preeminent. He's preeminent over everything. Then it says... That Jesus is all the fullness of God. Again, he's come to earth to present the Father. All the fullness. All that God is dwells in the Son. Not just then, but now. All that God is dwells in the Son. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God himself dwells in the body of of Jesus Christ. Let's, I want you to see that and, 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 and embrace that because that makes you want to worship. That makes you want to praise the Lord Jesus, fullness of God. And then he, get, then he gets to us. He's the reconciler. It says that he, he came to reconcile all things to himself and that for you and me he made peace through the blood of his cross. He didn't need the peace. We needed the peace. So he made peace. You and I, the scripture teaches us that you and I were at enmity with God. In other words, we were enemies of God because we were separated from God, because there was a gap between us and God. He describes us as once being alienated or being once alienated from God. But he has now reconciled you and me. You could not do that. I could not do that. 
There's nothing we can do. I was listening yesterday. I remember somebody was singing, and it might have been Don Moen, singing, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And there's nothing that you and I could do to, to bring in reconciliation. It took Jesus being the reconciler. Without Jesus, there would have been and there would be no reconciliation between us and God the Father. But it says in the verse that through him to reconcile all things to himself, making peace with the blood of his cross. You were once alienated. You were once hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds. And even though we were alienated, even though we were hostile to God, and even though we were doing evil deeds, the scripture says that he reconciled in the, his body of flesh by his death, us. He reconciled you to God. Now you have peace with you. Somebody said, well, I need to make my peace with God. Jesus took care of that. He's already made your peace with God. You just receive it by faith. And you walk with God in a close relationship because of Jesus, the reconciler. And he says, I want to do that so you can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Above, above reproach is just unable to accuse. Now, you know, you and I mess up all the time. But when, when the enemy goes before God and he says, I want to talk to you about so-and-so. And God opens up the book. Well, their name's written right here. I don't know what you got to say. Unable to accuse. He said, well, they're, they're here. You might as well go find somebody else. But they can't. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And if, the word, if using the word elect bothers you, well, then you got a problem because it's the scripture. But I'll just give you what Charles Finney said about it. He said, Lord, bring in all of the elect, and then elect some more. God is the one who justifies. Paul writes to the Ephesian church that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. How did we get to be holy and without blemish? Because we now wear the cloak of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And then he gets to this, if indeed. All of this, if indeed, you continue in the faith. Now you might think, Paul is saying to us there, well, uh, they might just stub their toe and give up on this thing. And the fact is, and I can't get into this, I'm not sure I totally understand it, but the form of this phrase in the Greek text indicates that Paul fully expected that the Colossian believers would continue in their faith. In the, in the original text, and we're talking about uh, tense of voice and all this stuff, which made my smoke come out my ears. All that is this, there, there was no doubt expressed in Paul. Not in the not in the the verbiage that he wrote. He was not questioning that they would fall and they would remove themselves from the faith. Uh, the ESV Study Bible says Paul wanted the Colossians to build their house on the solid foundation of truth and not the shifting sands of false teaching. If indeed, 
uh, Spirit-Filled Life Bible says this, If indeed it's not an expression of doubt but of confidence, Paul is confident in the Colossians, confident the Colossians will not deny their faith. So it's not a matter of denying the faith. He's just saying, I got confidence that you're going to continue in the faith by the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about them later on. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. No doubt. No wavering. And he said, you'll continue. You'll continue in the faith. You'll continue in the faith. And you'll continue grounded and steadfast. Why? Because you're embracing the preeminent Christ as your head. You're embracing him. And we continue. And the more we embrace Jesus as the preeminent Christ, the more able we are to be consistent in our faith and to continue grounded and steadfast in him. Come on, Sean, bring the, bring the worship team up. The preeminent Christ. There are, I want us to worship for just a moment, do a song or whatever. And, you know, if you want to come to the altar, obviously that's open. But I wanted to give us an opportunity today, while this is fresh on our minds, and while maybe by the work of the Holy Spirit you see something you didn't see before, or you understand something you didn't understand before, while that's fresh on our minds, I want us to collectively, corporately, both in this room and those worshiping with us at home, we would lift up our voices in honor the preeminent Christ, firstborn among the dead, so that he might be preeminent. Can you say amen? amen? Stand and join the worship team as we worship. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, Dressed in his righteousness alone, Fallest to stand before the throne, on Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. Let's sing that again, just together. Here we go. On Christ is solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of that, that you are our solid rock. We, we grip your hand, we grip you, our solid rocks, because all around us is sinking sand. But you have placed our feet on a rock. You have placed us in a place that is stable and secure. And we rest in that today, Lord Jesus. We exalt your name. We worship you, our preeminent Christ. Lord, help us burn in our eyes, burn in our vision. You as the preeminent Christ over everything, over us, over our bank accounts, over our bodies, over our relationships, over our jobs over everything, Lord, that you are preeminent today so that we would every day, not just on Sunday morning, but we would every day worship you, exalt you, and give thanks to you and and give testimony to your name. I thank you for this time together today. I pray a blessing upon all here and all of those worshiping together with us at home. I pray that you would pour out your spirit in such a way that we would have a fresh revelation of you, our preeminent Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.